right. Welcome to another episode of the Sullivan County Democrat podcast. Uh, we are, this is part one of a multi-part series that we are doing in February in celebration of Black History Month. Uh, joining us today is uh, a man who has lent a lot of his talents to the local community, whether it be through acting, directing, and as an educator. Uh, we are joined today by Oliver King. Uh, thank you for being here, Oliver. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. And uh, the first question I have is just for people that are not as familiar with uh, your performances and what you do in the community. What sort of uh, got you involved into the arts in the, in the first place? Well, I started a long time ago. Um, I was uh, I'm from Harlem originally, Harlem, New York, and um, went to Catholic school. And the nuns had a habit of putting us on stage for every holiday throughout the year. So there was always like a 15 or 10 minute celebration from what? Starting with Valentine's Day and St. Patrick's Day and on down the line. So I rather enjoyed that. Not so much the attention that I got, but the response from the audience. They were always so happy to see it. And now I'm coming from a big family. Um, that wasn't always the case because <laughs> I had six siblings and I was like, um, number five out of, uh, out of seven. So, um, you know, the, the attention, of course, was welcome, but I really liked seeing the people out there loving it, you know, clapping and laughing and whatever. And we always did something age appropriate, whatever it may have been. So yeah, that got us started. That got me started there. And then, of course, um, we moved to Queens and I went to high school in Brooklyn, always through Catholic high school, uh, Bishop Lachlan in Brooklyn. And, um, we had a, uh, uh, debate team and we had, uh, uh, what was it called? Uh, uh, we do public speaking. Um, I forget uh, it'll come to me in a minute. Um, you know, but we, we always in front of an audience doing something, getting a response back and, um, except that in, I think it was probably my uh, sophomore year, I decided to join the theater company. And um, I wound up playing the dead body behind the couch or one of 10 other people on stage, always in the background. And I was probably the only African-American in the theater company at the time. And um, I thought I wasn't getting enough uh, to do. I wanted to do more. And, uh, you know, I went to the drama I'm always, I mean, I played a Japanese peasant in Tea House, uh, a Japanese peasant in Tea House of the August Moon. And, um, I was so determined to, I went to a store called Takashimaya's on Fifth Avenue, right across the street from the uh, public library, the big one with the lions. And I asked the, I'm until later, um, I got to play a Japanese peasant. So, um, he says, Oh, well, this is what you do. And he showed me how to mix makeup colors to to make my skin look, you know, authentic, whereas all the other cast were using yellow makeup, you know, and it was always too much or too little or whatever. So anyway, he made me look very Japanese. He showed me how to do the eyes. He showed me a beautiful kimono. He showed me the wooden sandals, which my brother actually copied in his uh, woodshop class. He made me a pair of wooden sandals anyway. So I got the whole outfit together. And in the cast picture, I looked like I was the only Oriental in the cast at the time. So that was a real compliment, even though I had no lines except, you know, responses like crowd responses. But anyway, one thing led to another. And I wound up in a summer workshop with a wonderful person named Jonathan Ringcamp, who was very close friends with Geraldine Fitzgerald and, um, you know, other Hollywood people. And I had no idea until I got uh, cast in a street theater show and, from there on, it was uh, kind of nonstop. So coming to South, you know, I, I lived in Los Angeles trying to do the Hollywood thing. I got really disenchanted with all the horrible, um, you know, casting couch episodes and things. Mm-hmm. Um, it was way against my moral, you know, uh, uh, threshold. And I was like, uh-huh. so um, I did a little dancing with a company, uh, actually a professional dance company. I was kind of a... Um, thrown into that accidentally and that was very fulfilling so i stayed with that for about 12 years long story short uh, my mom retired sold her house in queen or our 
actually she gave it to my brother, I think. Um, anyway, um, she moved up here to Sullivan County and wanted to open her lifelong dream of a bed and breakfast. I came to visit around and I said, uh, I haven't seen snow in quite a few years living in LA. And I said, what happens when it snows around here? Six acres of land. And I'm thinking you're here by yourself and it, who's going to shovel the snow? Cause even shoveling snow in Queens was a, a little bit of a challenge. So she says, Oh, I'll manage. And I said, no, no, no. So I got, uh, you know, I, I, so uh, an opportunity to help my mom because she was aging. She moved up here, I think, probably in her mid to late 60s. And um, she had retired from a, a very long job, um, a service job working with, uh, actually working with mentally ill. Anyway, she moved up here, opened her bed and breakfast. I came back um, a couple of times and I said, well, you know, I'm kind of disenchanted with L.A. I don't like the weather. The people are fake and false, except the people I was working with in the dance company. And I said, well, you know, my mom's aging. Somebody's got to look after her after she raised seven many, many years ago. One thing led to another. I said, I'm out of L.A. I'm done. I'm going home. So I came here and uh, we ran the bed and breakfast for about uh, about 10 years. Um, her age and her health was pretty her health was pretty good, but she was tired. She was like, oh, I finally did what I wanted to do. and um, she uh lived her life uh, 97 she passed in um 2016 and left everything to me which i didn't expect at all i expected well maybe i'll go back to la mm -hmm. but um here i am with six acres of land in beautiful sullivan county i've been here since 1990 and i immediately got involved in theater i didn't know anybody at all when i came here um said my mom and i said uh hmm I got to do theater. I got to do theater. So right away, I came up with the idea of casting a, a produce, you know, doing a production of Raisin in the Sun. Mm -hmm. And um, didn't see many African-American people in my neighborhood here in County Onga Lake. So I said, well, best thing I can do is put a notice in the paper. Mm -hmm. I did so. One person perfect for each character in the play walked into the auditions. And I think it is there's some kind of like network going on here, you know, and I cast the play like within two days. It was a wonderful production. Those people didn't know each other. They became friends, still friends to this day, 30 years later. And um, it was a very successful production and that kicked off a whole line of uh, working with all of the um, uh, performing arts institutions in the county pretty much. So that, that's been very fulfilling. So that's pretty much why or how I came to. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, my next question is, I guess, staying on the topic of with, with Black History Month, uh, you, you've done a series of, of, of performances where you have um, played very inspirational historic figures, uh, such as Frederick Douglass, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, of those performances, how did they sort of come about for you to where, where, like, the, how did those projects come, like, into fruition? Well, um, again, um, being, you know, a uh, mother and son, my mom was a very popular person in this community. She, uh, she had done a lot of activism in Harlem when we were kids. Somehow she was always involved in community stuff and did the same when she came here. So, uh, she had joined a group called the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History, and that's the A-S-A-L-H. Uh, Dr. Leslie Howard was the pretty much the founder of the group, um, and many of the prominent African-Americans in the county were involved in that. It was um, it's a national organization here. It was kind of like very loosely run. Um, there was no competition with the NAACP. It was a balance. You know, they worked together on many projects. Um, but the ASALH focused mostly on education. Mm -hmm. And they offered scholarships and they offered, um, you know, many uh, honors to educators in the community, students in the community. As you know, NAACP is the CP is colored people. So they worked with uh, many, you know, Hispanic and Native American, mm -hmm. African-American life and history focused mostly on African-Americans. 
So um, they honored students, athletes, teachers um, in the county. And I was really, you know, quite astounded. But they had an annual breakfast where they gave out these awards and these, uh, you know, citations. And it was called Frederick Douglass Breakfast. So the first time I went, um, it was very, I mean, the highlight of the morning at eight o'clock in the morning, it started eight to like 12 noon, um, which I thought, why a breakfast at eight o'clock in the morning? But I went and everybody was there, all of our local politicians, um, the uh, principals of the local schools. Mm-hmm. It was packed. I mean, you know, two, three hundred people having breakfast at eight o'clock in the morning at the Woodburn Firehouse. And the breakfast was ridiculous. <laughs> it was so good. So I was really impressed with this. So I went up to one of the organizers and I said, um, Frederick Douglass breakfast. How come there's no, no mention of Frederick Douglass? And they said, well, you know, we thought about this and we thought about that. And they gave me the whole history of how to think. And I was like, but, but, but my, my question is about, have you ever thought about having somebody do a reading from Frederick Douglass's works? Um, and they said, no, that would be a great idea. And I said, well, I'd like to think about that for next year. This was, oh gosh, it had to be early, probably early to mid nineties. So a year comes by, I contacted them and I said, Oh, um, one thing in the program, they had a uh, theme for that year's awards breakfast. And so I said, well, um, I'd like to choose something that relates to the theme that you have selected in your group. I didn't join the group, actually, as a member of the organization, but um, they brought it to the uh, to the board of directors and everything. They said, oh, that's a great idea. I figured what the first theme was. It became an annual event that I would read a 10-minute passage from one of Frederick Douglass's works. So that kind of started things off with Frederick Douglass and, um, you know, wanted to do more. So um, I started looking into bringing a larger presentation to historical areas in Sullivan County. Um, I started doing research on whether or not the Underground Railroad has passed through here because Frederick Douglass was also connected with that in his day, along with, um, you know, um, the the other members of the Underground Railroad. Um, yeah, so it became a, an annual event uh, until probably early 2000, I guess probably right after 9-11, it kind of fell apart uh, for some reason. Well, I think also the administrators changed and I couldn't figure out what happened. But, um, no, actually it was later in 2000, not, not after 9-11, um, uh, probably mid 2000s, 2006 or seven. It kind of just kind of fell apart in a sense. Oh, well, I know Dr. Howard died. He passed away. He was elderly. And I think after he passed away, it kind of fizzled out a little bit, you know, um, they continued the award ceremony, but nobody, you know, I mean, everybody I contacted says, oh, we'll get back to you. And they didn't. And so I said, oh, well, maybe I've uh, run that gamut. You know, maybe it's fizzled out. But, you know, I wanted to continue doing it because I think it was very important. So that's pretty much how I started. Sure. So when you when you do the performances as a Frederick Douglass or Martin Luther King Jr., I mean, I know with every uh, type of acting and, and such, I know is always getting into character. But when you're actually playing these historical figures, uh, what kind of work did you have to put into preparing for those roles and, and also picking sort of which, uh, I guess, whether it be speeches or uh, passages that they from their from what they've done and said into like picking that out for, for these uh, performances? Well, Martin Luther King is a little bit easier to prepare because there's so much video and so many, um, you know, recordings of his speech patterns and his, uh, you know, his persona. You know, I, I can see him and watch him and not really copy him, but sort of emulate him a little bit. Sure. But Frederick Douglass seems to be closer to my natural self. I mean, first of all, astrology is not a big deal, but we're born in the same astrological sign mm-hmm. 
his words are much more daring, I think, than Martin Luther King, because Martin Luther King had to be very PC in a sense, not not with, uh, you know, sexual or, or social things, but he was under, um, you know, um, they were watching every move he made, you know, so he had to be really careful about a lot of things and the people that he connected to. But in Frederick Douglass's day, I don't know how he lived to be 70 and or 80, you know, close to 80 years old because there was no protection. Um, he was always being protected by the people who promoted him. But, um, well, I'm kind of digressing, but my point is that I, there's, there's no video of him. So, I take all my cues from the power of his words. He was an self-educated orator. And um, his vocabulary, I often find myself, well, not too much recently, but in the beginning, I'd find words that I'm like, what is that? That he would use that I wasn't familiar with. And I have a pretty good vocabulary. So I'd be looking it up and I go, oh, okay. And his speech patterns were um, affected because he created the whole thing himself. He had nobody before him, mm -hmm. you know, whereas Martin Luther King had Frederick Douglass and maybe some other, uh, you know, leaders to copy from. But Douglass created this whole persona of himself after 20 years of slavery from birth to age 20. He was a slave and badly beaten and mistreated and threatened his life often. Um, Watching his uh, relatives, you know, I mean, they they made sure to separate families in the days of slavery. So you figured out if that person working next to you was a cousin or a sibling, which woman was your mother? You, you know, they didn't even know who their mother was. And slave masters often bore children with the slave women. This, uh, uh, a child of your mother. So, you know, he had so many things to deal with, but yet he became this amazingly powerful and daring, brave orator where he would just, you know, speak was in a mode of chastising. He actually, um, admonished many of the white people's, uh, society telling them that what they were doing was a lie. It was against the laws of God and, and, and man. Um, it was a horrible thing to do. There was no reason. Um, they could have easily gotten the same results if they treated their slaves. They would have got better results if they treated their slaves like people instead of animals. You know, it was really on top of, a, you know, um, land-basting the people responsible for bondage. Mm -hmm. Um even he got to a point where he condemned the Christ, their Christian beliefs because they used to hide their or justify their actions with uh, Christianity, you know, passages from the Bible where they talk about uh, slavery is mentioned in the Bible and um, being punished for certain bad deeds. And any time a slave would say no, that was considered horrible. You, you, you don't defy your master. So anyway. Um, the point of all this is that um, preparing for either of the two gentlemen, um, I can look at Martin Luther King and kind of copy his speech patterns because he was really a preacher. And they have a certain way of elongating bowels and, you know, uh, speaking in a certain way to um, pull the people in. Um, Frederick Douglass didn't have that preacher type. Uh, persona, but he was able to speak with anger and ferocity. You know, he would just say, you know, this is wrong. You've done, you've been doing the wrong thing. And he'd often scream at the people. You know, he would, he would talk about how badly he was treated and the people around him, how they destroyed families. And he didn't even know when his birthday was, you know, things like that. He spoke the truth with no boundaries. So his work, I think, is a lot more powerful almost than Martin Luther King's because he had no, no, uh, no reins on him. He just like spoke freely. And, um, I, I can't, like I said, I can't imagine why he, uh, how he survived the haters, you know, the people that wanted to 
continue slavery. He thought slavery was the worst thing on God's earth. You know, he was a very religious man. He had, he was very spiritual. He believed in God. Um, but he brought out all of the horrible things about slavery and threw it in their face and says, this is, how can you do this? You know, so preparing for them, it's, it's not, it's not that difficult in a way. Um, I, I don't like to be seen as an actor doing Frederick Douglass because I've also seen some of our bigger African American, uh, um, actors, you know, more famous. Mm-hmm. do readings of Frederick Douglass and they don't have they don't capture the F man in my opinion I mean I think they do you know like James Earl Jones and uh, Morgan Freeman Danny Glover they've all done Frederick Douglass but in modern day you know they wear a sweater and jeans or whatever which is okay and they read the works which is good um, but they don't become for and I think that the, the the thing I like as an actor is to become the character. So it's a very simple thing in my mind. I I try to wear, you know, period piece of costume. <clears throat> and I think in my mind that I am Frederick Douglass rather than I am reading Frederick Douglass. So um, it's hard to memorize all of his stuff. And I don't know if he memorized three hours of speech as well. I think maybe he spoke off the top of his head. But the only way they could capture every word of his speech is if it was written down because there were no recording equipment in those days. So um, I think that he probably read from a text in front of him um, because he spoke for two, three hours at a time, you know, without any pause. So um, I think a lot of it was in his head. But I think that he had to write things down. He had to prepare his speeches to be on track. And everything has been, has been, um, you know, has been retrieved. All of his writings are still very accurate. They didn't have recording equipment, but they have all of his speeches. So he had to write things down. And he was a writer. After all, he did write three novels. So. Um, and and yeah. you mentioned the whole process of becoming a character, a, a mm-hmm. person, as opposed to just reading. And so I guess for you, I would imagine that has more of an emotional attachment in a way um, uh, upon you when, when you are in, in you when you are becoming these people. So when you look back on it, and I'm sure this probably isn't I'm sure you'll be doing more of these types of things in the future. And we'll talk about your upcoming uh, uh reading at the uh, Hurleyville Performing Arts Center, but but looking at particularly the, the roles we've been talking about, Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King Jr., when you complete them, just what kind of, what feeling is that to you? Like, what, how do you feel after having done that? And what do you uh, enjoy most of it? Well, the, the truth is I've done more for this over the past several years than Martin Luther King, because Martin Luther King people can get, you know, they can sure. pull up a recording. But I enjoy doing Frederick because I'm the one that brings him alive. And I feel that's a responsibility. That's an honor. So, um, yeah, it's very emotional. Um, I put together a piece that was drawn from one of his novels, his first novel, when he talks about his life from age eight to age 20. And all of the horrible things that he went through, like having a fight with one of the slave masters who tried to whip him and beat him. And he fought back for the first time in his life when he was years old. Um, I can barely get through any of his. I've done maybe five or six different pieces by him that I, I put together or edited down for, you know, space and time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can barely get through them without choking back tears. Because I I feel like I'm putting myself in that situation. And if I were talking about it, it would bring me to tears. Mm-hmm. Um, if I were talking about the, the the case of anybody that I knew or loved, it would bring me to tears. Um, when he talks about being beaten or seeing his aunt being stripped naked and whipped in the field, you know, those things are horrible. But he threw it right out there. So um, it does get very emotional, it, it, more emotional than I would say any other African-American um, of, of the 20th century, because it was a horrible time. 
it was a really horrible time. And even talking about it, I get choked up sometimes because uh, I can imagine myself mm-hmm. in that situation. And, um, you know, having trained with some very good teachers as an actor, I learned that that's what you have to do. You have to be put yourself there and find a substitution. So, um, you know, I can take a substitution by getting a, a spanking from my father and blow it out of proportion, you know, and and use that as a substitution because, of course, I've never been beaten as a slave. I've never been stripped and whipped, you know. So I take one situation in my life that was real or frightening or painful and substitute that into what he went through and it just kind of merges it merges but that's training as an actor um and it works it really works because um I don't, I don't push it but the words are there and you were talking about how hard it is for you to like you have to choke back tears and stuff so reflecting on frederick Douglass for that matter and the fact that he could have i guess shown the strength that he did in those situations to to i just what do you think that says about him or what are, um. well um let me see um i'm gonna pin myself to the screen oh that's reversing it okay uh hold on one second i'm just replaced pen i don't want to lose you again sure. so um i'm sorry could you repeat that sure so you were talking about when you are doing performances of like Frederick Douglass and you're becoming the character and, and you're reading certain parts, it's hard for you to like do it without choking back tears. So for him, like just thinking of how strong Frederick Douglass was and, and to be able to, to, to give the speeches that he did the way that he did, uh, I guess what kind of, uh, thoughts did, or what kind of, takeaways do you have is that like reflecting on him as a historical figure how could he have become so strong um well he tells a story of how he you know he was separated from his mother at birth as were all of his siblings and his mother was used as a uh, not to be politically or not to be insensitive but the truth was that she was used as a breeding ground for more slaves mm-hmm. because slave owners found out if they made their own slaves, they wouldn't have to purchase and buy them. You know, it was a, it was a financial or, uh, you know, um, you know, investment to have a slave woman who could bear children. Mm-hmm. So he tells a story of how had been separated from him. But for the first time, she made the attempt to walk 12 miles after her day's labor to find him every night and rock him to sleep. That's how he decided on when his birthday was, because she always called him her little valentine. So as he grew up and he became inquisitive about when is my birthday, because he worked with a lot of the slave master's children as well. When he was a child, he had to do certain favors and whatever duties for the for the young children of the slave master. And they always celebrated birthdays. Mm-hmm. But he became curious. What's this birthday thing? How can you can you imagine being born without knowing what a birthday is? Mm-hmm. So um he decided that after a certain point in his life that if his mother called him little Valentine, he had to be born on February 14th or somewhere around those February 14th. But um, what I'm saying is that his strength may have come from his mother rocking him to sleep to walk 24 miles round trip mm-hmm. every night to rock him to sleep and put that spirit of hers, her strength which she didn't do for her other children. So there was something that this woman felt was special about him. And a mother knows. Mm-hmm. A mother knows. Um, the rumor is that the master of the plantation was his father. Mm-hmm. But the fact is his actual biological mother felt 
see, he was raised by an old woman who was too uh, old to do labor. Mm -hmm. So they were commissioned to raise the slave children. But the slave children were always ripped away from their natural parents. So there's no bonding. Anyway, so um, I think that his strength came from his mother making that effort to come see him. And he knew, even as a young child, um, his mother, which many of the slaves didn't know who their, you know, didn't, weren't sure who their mother was, but he knew. So that gave him uh, um, uh, an awareness or uh uh, an energy or a strength or a faith in his own self that he was cared for and loved. He knew it. And he held on to that through his entire life. Um, he saw so many of the slaves around him not having that same connection with a mother. Plus the fact that she prayed over him. She sang to him. She rocked him in her, in his, in her arms. Um, so that made a huge difference. So it would make a difference in any child. Mm -hmm. You know, we all had that. You know, I mean, every mother rocks their baby, except when you don't have it makes you less empathetic, mm -hmm. less compassionate. A child who has is not rocked at birth doesn't have feelings. So there was a lot of animosity and angst among the slaves. You know, they didn't trust each other a lot of times, but the, the slave masters knew that, that it would break bonds between them. Many did manage to get through that because of a natural instinct that all humans have. And even the animals have that, you know. But Douglas felt from a very young age, um, I think he said he was eight years old when he saw a woman who he knew to be his aunt, um, his mother's youngest or younger sister, being beaten. And it just, it, it just, of course, can you imagine, you know, um, in front of children doing these horrible things? It wasn't, oh, take, the, take her into the barn and do it. No, they stripped the woman down, tied her to a tree, and because she showed um, love toward another man or, you know, affection, towards someone else. They never wanted that to happen. So he said at age eight that he would never be a slave forever. He knew at age eight that he would not die a slave. So um, by the time he was probably 14, he started thinking that he would escape. He would find a way to break his chains and be free. It took him six years to do it. He tried two or three times, wound up in jail, um, always sold off to another plantation. Um, he wasn't a rebellious slave. He didn't make trouble. But because he was so strong in his own presence and he was defiant to some of the um, the uh, the field hands, I guess, you know, the ones who, who ran the that they were always on his case about something. Mm -hmm. You know, if he thought something was wrong, he would say it. Whereas the other slaves were like, you know, he would he would say right away, no, I'm not doing that. That's wrong. You shouldn't do that. So he he was very bold. It could be the genes he got from the slave master who who was his father. Or it could be the love he got from his mother. It could be a divine intervention. But even a combination of all the all three of those things must have made him as powerful as he was because he had no stop. Um, the other thing that made him, I think, so strong was that he had a penchant. I mean, he had a, a strong desire to learn to read. Overhearing the slave masters talk about certain things about how to keep the slaves in place, he overheard a conversation about learning to read and how it, um, when he was working with the slave master's children, they had reading lessons. So he would stand in the background and learn as they were being taught. And when one of the slave master's uh, wives or one of the house saw that he was interested, she was kind to him because he was good with the other boys that he was taking care of. Mm -hmm. uh, friends, he played with the other boys and, you know, did his job, so to speak, to keep them entertained. So she 
invited him to sit down and learn to read. And the slave master went bananas, screamed his wife, told him, you know, you can't teach a nigga how to read because, you know, then they will never be any good as a slave. And he heard that, of course, and he said, oh, well, then I'll have to find another way because he was learning his ABCs at that time. You know, here he is already eight years old and just learning ABCs. So teaching himself to read made him a stronger person as well. And I guess shifting into uh, this month, or I guess you should say in a couple of days for February. Um, you have to do it a little louder. Oh, sure. Um, this uh, February, uh, you have a, a series, uh, or we'll be running uh, on a few different dates in February with the uh, Hurleyville Performing Arts Center. We will be doing a reading of The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how this particular um, performance uh, came about and uh, I guess explain a little bit about what you'll be doing. Well, actually, um, I'm not sure if I heard you correctly, but it's going to be five different performances over the month mm-hmm. um, in my head. But it starts on the 17th and it's um, um, two performances a week. So for three weeks, well, one, two weeks, there's four more performances. Um, those dates are posted on my Facebook page. But uh, how that came about is that um, a couple of years back, I uh, had seen uh, my good friend Shermer Alexander, Shermer Williams, teaches dance and um, at the Hurleyville Art Center. She's been teaching dance for years. But anyway, I became familiar with the Art Center because she was so excited when it was being built. And she told me all about it. And I said, oh, that's great. Maybe I can do something here eventually. Well, once the place opened, I went directly to them and I said, hey, you, you know, you want to do something for Black History Month? And they were like, oh, yes, we're looking for programs because we're brand new in the community and we want to do all kinds. of." I said, OK, fine. So I said, I have Frederick Douglass. And I said, um, you know, an hour would be great. Um, and it was a live performance at the time. I think it had to be 2017. Um they were very excited that had a, I had brought this to them. So I went to them and asked them to do it. It was a huge success. So um, they invited me back. And um, this year, or I should say last year now, um, they called me and they said um, that they wanted to do something different this time. Um, and if I would be interested, I was like, certainly. And they said, um, she, Erin uh, Dudley, who was the, uh, um, I uh, don't know her title in that situation, but she's the head of the Hurleyville Arts Center. One of her favorite novels is The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. And I said, oh, absolutely. Let's do it. And I thought maybe it would be one performance. So I said, well, get back to me when you figure out what it is you want to do. So she said, oh, well, let's do the whole novel. It's not a big, fat, huge you know, novel. It's only got maybe 300 pages. But um, it's broken into two sections. Mm-hmm. So she brought the idea to me and said, this is her idea of how to do it. And I was totally on board with it from day one. I, um, the Fire Next Time wasn't, I mean, I knew of many of Baldwin's works, but um, over the years, I haven't read them all. And I hadn't actually read all of The Fire Next Time. So I got a copy and I read it and I was like, oh, wow, this is really good. So um, it's not the same as doing a historical as doing an as historical figure as Frederick Douglass. So I'm not going to be James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be reading James Baldwin. So that's a whole different approach. Um, but that was how it came about. She approached me with it, offered me the idea, and I thought it was a great idea. And I said, yes, we let's do it this way. You know, um, James Baldwin is a, a dynamic icon. American history, a little more current than Martin Luther King or Frederick Douglass. But he um, also ran in the same genres I have in the sense uh, many of his friends were Hollywood icons. You know, I mean, from Marlon Brando to Charlton Heston, you know, uh, Cicely, who we just lost. Um, so, yeah, um, I am looking forward to doing that. And, but that's how it came about. And she approached me with the idea and I said, let's figure it out. And we have figured it out. 
Sure. And um, yeah, I have the dates here. I believe I'd written down is February 17th, 19th, 20th, 24th, 26th and 27th. There you go. Yeah. And, um, and uh, yeah, no, I'm sure it's going to be a, a fabulous uh, uh, event and, and I look forward to watching. And um, I guess my last question for you today is, you know, right now this is a strange world we're living in with the with the Zoom and, and, and doing a lot of uh, virtual things because of the pandemic. But whether it be on virtual platforms or back when we get things in person, uh, is there anything else that you have, I guess, coming up or uh, after this or that you're working on or goals that you have for things in the near future? Well, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that I have something before that, uh, a virtual broadcast of Frederick Douglass's um, oration, which he entitled What the Black Man Wants. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to be virtually broadcast from the Ethelbert B. Crawford Library on February 11th, mm-hmm. probably around somewhere between six and seven o'clock. I, I think um, I've used around you know fourth of july earlier in the evening but it gets dark so fast but it doesn't matter it's virtual but i think it'll probably be you know in the evening that's happening on february 11th um then the whole series with uh, uh james baldwin's work um i you know thing is new to me because uh you know i i consider myself more of a stage actor than a film actor so uh you know being on camera is a little still imposing for me but uh yeah, i'm getting used to it um i think I, you know i work with kids i teach um at the junior high school in fallsburg junior senior high school in fallsburg um so education working with youth is great um i did uh, about four years of uh, Shakespeare in the Park and Liberty a few years back. And a lot of those kids have grown up and have a wonderful, you know, uh, memory of that experience. Um, you know, uh, this country had taken the time to write down all the reasons they wanted to separate from the British colonies. Of course. You know, and establish a new country mm-hmm. because they felt oppressed. So here they come over here and then start oppressing other people, which really doesn't make sense. But they did take the time to write it down. And that has been followed since day one. Mm -hmm. So the Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, the Emancipation Proclamation, all those things are, you know, ground in stone, written in stone. My biggest hope for this country is that they keep going back and reading those documents and trying up to them 100% because they're not. They're still not doing it. And uh, without making excuses, you know, there, there's no excuse for um, something that happened in this country. Um, it, it's sheer stupidity. It's just plain stupidity to think that, you know, God put people on the earth to do what they did. You know, it, it doesn't make any sense. Even our wild animals perform better in the wild. You know, at least they have a reason for their behavior. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no reason for those behaviors and the slavery and all those other things. It's like, okay, and then not acknowledging, e- even after the fact, acknowledging the benefit that it gave them. Okay, so even though slavery was horrible and wrong, if it weren't for the slaves, they wouldn't have had the five biggest banks in this country. Okay, history has shown, you name the five biggest banks. I, I can name maybe three, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and Chase. Those three banks were built on the backs of slaves. The White House, the uh, the Capitol building, you know, they were all built by slaves. You know, so even if they are resentful that slavery was abolished for whatever reason, because it took money out of their pockets, at least acknowledge the benefit that it gave them when it was happening. I mean, you know, not that I'm justifying slavery or, or really was in favor of it, but if it weren't for the slaves, there'd be a lot, this country would be a lot different. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if it weren't for people like Abraham Lincoln coming, stepping up and saying the slavery was wrong, things would be a lot different. So, all you know, the whole Black Lives Movement and everything, people need to start acknowledging the truth. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we had somebody 
in charge of our country that lied every step of the way. You know, I mean, he had only interest he had was his own self worth, which is really not much, but he, he was only in it for himself. Maybe he threw a little bit to his family, but, um, that's not going to come to fruition because everything he, everything was built on a house of cards. Everything he did was a lie. So hopefully we'll get past that in the country and that our country will finally realize the beauty of bringing people together in a diverse society because it doesn't exist in any other country in the world. I've done a lot of traveling. I've traveled through Europe. I've traveled all through Mexico. I've been all over the country and um, Mexico and Europe, very different. I've also been to Africa and there's not anywhere near the diversity of this country, which was a beautiful dream to bring these people, to bring us all together and to, and to, um, you know, to, 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 to destroy that dream of unity and diversity is, is, is really horrible. I mean, let us all live in peace together because it's a beautiful way to live life. Uh, and this country is a beautiful place to live. So as long as we keep someone, you know, um, at the top who we can go through history and talk about the Ku Klux Klan and all these other, you know, uh, subversive, you know, what militant or whatever racist groups and whatever. But that's sheer ignorance and stupidity because this nation is founded on a, the beauty of bringing people together. All the immigrants came here from Europe anyway. No, we're all immigrants. Everybody on, the, on this on, on this continent immigrated from somewhere else. And the proof of that is in the plight of the Native Americans. You know, I mean, if you really look at our history, hello, you know, but they came over here because they were oppressed and they were feeling like, you know, um, they weren't getting their fair share or whatever. And, uh, you know, they broke chains with all the kings and queens in Spain and England and France and whatever. And they all came over here. I mean, and they followed and started wars to bring them back. You know, I mean, they really fought to get this to get this land. Um, to, to stay here, they fought the people that they left behind. But the way, the way they took it over from the Native Americans is a little questionable. So either way, here's history. You have to keep moving forward. And I think that we should just acknowledge that we're all here together and we all have the same value as in the eyes of, you know. Um, and one thing a, a French clown told me when I was in the, at the Olympics in 1972, he told me I was, it was the first time a man ever said I was beautiful and he was a bodybuilder. And I was a little nervous at first. I was like, okay, cause you know, um, and he says, oh, no, 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 don't miss because, and he said, we, I'm not sure who he, who he was talking about. And I spoke a little French out of high school, so I understood everything he was saying. His exact words were, Oliver, if God scooped up some earth and made a man, it had to be mud. It couldn't have been sand. And I thought about that, the color of sand and the color of mud. And I'm thinking, you know, so everybody believes that Adam and Eve were, were, were white. <laughs> well, they would have to be sand, but they wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked. So he said, mud, when you put it together, you can build something with mud. Sand will wash away. And it won't ever dry and become. So he says, the first man that got that, you know, Adam and Eve had to be made from mud. And what is the color of mud? <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a straight. I never thought of it that way, you know. So he was saying that the first, you know, if those who believe in Adam and Eve and God created man, you know, from the earth, that he had to be a dark skinned person, you know. So I said, okay, fine. And he also believed that, you know, for the first time I heard the, the, the theory that Jesus might also have been dark skinned because of where he lived and uh, would color the skin, which it does. Um, so, yeah, anyway, so um, the diversity in our country has to be acknowledged and revered. I think once people get past this and, um, you know, I think it will happen soon. It's not long. I mean, because uh, the whole thing at the. Um, the Capitol building on January 6th it was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It was like children having a food fight in the cafeteria. It was stupid. 
And they never came back. They kept threatening and they kept, you know, you know, they were like little kids, little bullies, you know, like uh, breaking into the, you know, to the candy store or whatever. You know, it was it's such a I mean, I watched it and I was like, I, I wasn't really afraid because I could see through it. I could see it was just like stupid behavior. It was really stupid. You know, and um, they never came back, and now it's all fizzling out, and the Proud Boys are, like, saying, ah, oh, well, Trump dumped us, you know, whatever. Um, but all that, for a modern-day, ex- you know, um, a modern-day uh, 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 display of whatever was totally ridiculous, you know. And, and I really don't think it's going to have any long-term effects, thank God, you know, but... Now we have a man who's been in politics for over 50 years. I don't care about his age. If he dropped dead tomorrow, you know, I, I don't wish that on him at all. But he, he seems a little shaky, and people are talking about his age, 70 president. They had to put that out there. He's the oldest president in the history of the United States. Well, sure, but he's also the most experienced, if you think about it. You know, right or wrong, he knows what he's doing. For one thing, whereas our previous president had no idea how to run a government. He knew how to run a business. But then again, not so much. Because there's a lot of complaints there, too. You know, if you look at the history of Donald Trump, he doesn't pay people. You know, um, he makes promises he doesn't keep. And that we went through four years of that. So um, I know I'm talking uh, a lot, but I I think. Well, I I think your earlier point, regardless of, uh, I guess, you know, political parties and stuff. You know, I covered a naturalization ceremony on Thursday at the government center. And, you know, that was another example of what you were saying, sort of, of the beauty of diversity and the fact many people have acknowledged that our country, you know, one of its strengths, or maybe its greatest strength for that matter, is that, you know, people from all walks of the earth, uh, as far as where they were from, sort of all come into this melting pot that is the United States. And so there's someone in this country from every corner of the United, of every corner of the world, there's a person or more, you know, hundreds of people from everywhere in this country. Yep. And and that's definitely a beautiful thing, but I, I appreciate you for joining us uh, this afternoon. And uh, we can't wait to, uh, to see uh, the uh, performance, the virtual performance, uh, both at the Ethelbert, Crawford Library uh, that comes up first. And then, of course, the reading of A Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. So thank you for joining us. And, um, yeah, have a great rest of uh, your weekend. With all the snow coming again. Yes. And and it's actually your birthday, too, right, tomorrow? Uh, Yes, actually. It is my birthday. (laughs) Well, happy birthday to you, and thanks for joining us. Oh, well, thank you very much.